You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our New Testament reading is going to be 1 Timothy verses 4 and 5. 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5. Uh, here now the reading of God's Word. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Our Old Testament reading and sermon text is going to be Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It is the whole chapter of chapter 2, Ecclesiastes. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart is still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool, so I hated life. Because what, is, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. 
What has a man from all the toil of, and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the, even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to these hard words, and we need your help. We need, we need your help to understand them. We need your help to listen to them. We need your help to have the kind of courage necessary to look at the world and to assess it honestly, to look at our lives and assess them honestly. And then in doing so, we we need your help even then to then receive from your hand the good gifts you intend to give us, even in a world like this one. So God, may we marvel together at your kindnesses and may we see and receive from your hand all your good words and all your good gifts. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, For two summers, I worked at a summer camp in Missouri. Um, The owner of this summer camp owned a cave. His name was Joe, and the name of the cave was Joe's Cave. It's a very original name. To get into this cave, uh, you had to crawl through um, what was called the cereal box, uh, which was a small metal frame uh, to keep out people who would go into caves. I guess that's like a thing. Missouri is very boring, and so you go into dark caves for fun. Um, and, uh, and the cereal box to get in was uh, just a little bit too small for me. Um, and so we literally had kind of a Pooh Bear moment um, where I had to put my arms through, and then people lifted my legs and just shoved me um, into the cave. When we got into the cave... Uh, There was a number of exciting things, numerous sermon illustrations uh, to be had there in the cave. One of the very first things they did is they had us uh, crawl, we had to crawl um, into uh, the first kind of big room in in this cave, and we all had headlamps, and standing there, uh, they wanted to uh, warn us about kind of different spaces in the cave, where not to go, where um, things could get a little bit scary or dangerous. And so, uh, to illustrate a point, they had us turn off our headlamps. Uh, When we turned off our headlamps, you could see nothing. It was completely pitch black. Um, uh, You couldn't see anything. Uh, You you could hold your hand up uh, half an inch from your face, as I did to one of my campers, um, and no one could see anything. You, You were just in this space completely blind without your headlamp. So if you're in the cave and your headlamp lost batteries or charge or whatever, um, ha- whatever kind of headlamp you particularly choose to have there in the dark cave, um, you wouldn't be able to see anything. And as I was reflecting on this text today, and particularly this middle section, um, which is going to serve here for our, our opening kind of understanding of where 
Solomon intends to go in this very, very difficult, odd book, Ecclesiastes. Um, I, I was struck again by remembering that moment in the cave. Um, Solomon draws our attention to that there's essentially two different approaches to living in the world as it actually is, which is um, one of the more controversial things asserted in this book is that the, the world exists, it's there. And it has a way about it, a way that can't be altered, a way that can't be reshaped or redefined. We, we don't get to remake the world and ourselves however we see fit. Um, the world just absolutely is. And then there, there comes a choice in living in the world as it actually is, the world under the sun. That you can do so either with eyes in your head, to use the illustration he has here, or to do so with your eyes closed. That really is the fundamental choice that we're faced with. If you're here today and you're not a Christian or you're trying to just wrestle with the very nature of Christianity, um, we're spending the summer in a book called Ecclesiastes. It's a very strange book in the Bible. It kind of is uh, really different than really any other place you can find in Scripture. And the challenge of this book is it presents us with the nature of the world and it doesn't do so with kind of this nice candy coating, like everything's fine. It doesn't do, um, doesn't do so saying, hey, hey, with some sort of sentimental, sappy um, love wins in the end. It just sets before us the nature of life as, um, to use the language of Solomon, under the sun. Uh, the nature of life um, within the horizon of what we can see and touch and smell, if there is no God, if there's nothing beyond what we can see and smell and touch, um, Ecclesiastes is assessing what meaning does life have in that kind of world. And the, the call, the challenge, and frankly, it, it is a, a task that if you were to say no to this task, I, I understand because looking at the world through that lens is terrifying. Um, it, it could be argued that the vast majority of human history has been one attempt after another to make sense of the world with our eyes closed. To deny the reality that Solomon is going to hold up to us um, through, throughout the whole entirety of this book. To simply deny it, to simply refuse it. And try to live like we're in the, clay, in the cave with our headlamps off. Um, I found a quote from Bertrand Russell. Um, a dead atheist who attempted to look at the world and, and spent his career looking at the world, denying the existence of God, denying that there was anything beyond what, what is under the sun. But he did so with his eyes open. Here's his conclusion, reflecting on our death. There is darkness without, and when I die, there will be darkness within. There is no splendor, nor vastness anywhere. Only triviality for a moment, and then nothing. Happy Sunday. But he sounds like Solomon at a number of points in this book. 
There is no splendor nor vastness anywhere. Only triviality for a moment and then nothing. So the thing I want to challenge us to do this summer as we're in Ecclesiastes and this week in particular is to look at the world with eyes open. To to evaluate the meaning of pleasure under the sun with our eyes open, headlamps on. To, To evaluate the meaning of work and wealth with eyes open and headlamps on. To evaluate the meaning of learning and even of wisdom itself with eyes open, headlamps on. To see what's really there. And for those of you in this room who either say, I don't know if there's anything beyond the sun or just live with a kind of absolute certainty, like Bertrand Russell, I'm saying, no, there, there is only what is under the sun. The challenge I have for you, the thing that I would invite you into, to do so honestly this summer, to do so with eyes open and headlamp on, to do so with eyes in your head and not blindly, That really is the crux point of this entire chapter. It's there right in the middle, verses 12 to 17. It's the key to understanding um, the the nature of the project that Solomon takes up in the first half of this chapter and the last half of this chapter. And the beautiful thing about this chapter is you're going to get Solomon's conclusion, which is going to draw on an answer found beyond the sun. But before we get to that conclusion, it's very, very satisfying, um, we need to see uh, his conclusion from life under the sun and how he went about exploring, is there meaning, is there a way of shepherding or controlling or or directing all of life um, if all we have is what's under the sun? And we spoke spoke the last couple of weeks about his, uh, this, this word vanity, better translation in the Hebrew would be vapor. Um, his point here is not to say nothingness of nothingness or vanity or emptiness of emptiness. His point is to say vapor of vapor. Um, his, his discussion here of shepherding the wind is a, a parallel analogy or, or, or a picture um, that he's trying to draw of what life under the sun is like. It's not that it's meaningless. It's that it's vapor. It's, it's, we can't quite get a hold of it. We can't control it, to, to try to um, direct it, to try to establish kind of some sort of firmness in life um, under the sun is like trying to shepherd the wind. I prefer um, the phrase herding cats. You just can't quite make it go the way you want it to go. And that is always the case according to Solomon. Solomon, to explore this, explores it primarily in the vein of three different projects. The first project is pleasure, and that's established for us in verses 1 through 11. Second section is vanity of wisdom. Um, If we live with our eyes open, is there anything gained? If we have our eyes open and can rightly assess the world lived under the sun, um, can we we get any sort of uh, 
advantage in how we leverage the world and leverage our lives um, that last or that has um, lasting meaning. And then last, he goes to the project of work and construction and building. If maybe if I give my life to work, then we can actually build something lasting and forever. So let's take them in order, look at them, and then see his conclusion there, starting in verse 24. But first, verses 1 through 11. And I think verses 1 through 11 is particularly poignant for the city of Denver. As I think about our city, uh, one of the uh, common jokes, uh, us, we have pastor jokes in our city, um, and one of our assessments of the city of Denver, um, we were, I was actually with another pastor in town, pastor at uh, Fellowship Denver Hunter, and we were attending a faith and work seminar in New York City, and uh, they kept talking about this idolatry of success and um, being in power and how everyone moves to New York because they want to be in the top of their field, whatever the field is, whether it's ballet or finance or owning businesses, like the best of the best. If you want to be the best of the best, you go to New York City and your goal is to get a corner office in New York City or whatever the equivalent of a corner office is in ballet. I don't know why ballet came up a lot that week. It was very odd because I don't know any ballet dancers. Unless one of you is a ballet dancer. And then I would like to meet you just so I can know one. Um, And uh, one of the jokes that we kept saying every time they would talk about um, kind of that idolatry, that approach to life, that, that attempt to make some sort of, build some sort of significance out of one's life. Um, Hunter and I's ongoing joke is that Denver was a city of middle management. Um, the goal here, very rarely is it to be the CEO, very rarely is it to um, success and power and achieving the corner office. Um, more often than not, people move to Denver in order to play. And so um, the whole goal of one's career is to work just hard enough so that you make just enough money um, so that you can go skiing on the weekends and you can leave um, town at about 11 on Fridays. You know, you show up at the office, you're seen, and then you go um, head up to one of the ski resorts. Um, And so you don't want to work too hard because then you'll get moved out of Denver and have to work 50, 60 hours a week. Instead, you want to work um, just hard enough that you can afford um, to keep your job. Um, So you do a decent enough job and you get to play. In other words, we live in a city um, that has been called the recreation urban center of the world. Like it is one of the places where people move um, to have a job, build a career, build a life in order to seek pleasure. Um, the Forbes magazine a few years ago did an um, assessment of uh, the seven deadly sins and then attached one of the seven deadly sins to different cities in the United States. And Denver, surprise, surprise, um, was named uh, the Lust City, um, city of uh, kind of we were the preeminent city um, around the seventh, uh, around the deadly sin of lust. In other words, this city is about pleasure. This city is about recreation. This city um, is primarily oriented towards fun and recreation and doing what one's heart desires. I think it is uh, kind of the preeminent attitude of our city. Um, just leave me alone and leave everybody else alone. Let us do whatever it is that we want to do. Um, when protests broke out in our city in 2020, while other cities were, um, you, you had protests and you had riots and you had stuff going on um, for months, our city had 
the temerity um, and, and the long uh, commitment to persevere in their rioting and their um, protesting for about two and a half days. Um, in other words, leave me alone. There's skiing to be done. Um, I need to go hike. I need to go ski. I need to have fun and pursue pleasure. We're known for our restaurants. We're known for our overstock of breweries and beer. Um, we are known for seeking pleasure, every pleasure you can imagine. Whether it's adventure sports or it's sex or it's drink or it's food, Denver is an attempt as a city, attempting right now, I think, to do what Solomon did better in verses 1 through 11. What did Solomon do? Well, Solomon sought after that which would please him. He says that he held no desire back from his own heart. He did whatever he sought out to do. He did whatever he wanted to do. He said, I'm going to cover over this vanity, this vaporousness, this apparent emptiness with as much pleasure, with as much desire as I possibly can. And the list that you have that starts to unfold there in verse 3 is remarkable. Here is a man who didn't just kind of passively pursue pleasure. He wasn't a lame pleasure seeker. He didn't think of the best night at home is to flip on Netflix and watch a handful of videos. I told you last week, by the way, as a complete aside, I need to apologize to daffodils um, for last week. I said some horrific things about daffodils that I intended to say about dandelions. And so those of you here last week, I apologize. Um, Never meant to deface daffodils the way I did. But he sought pleasure everywhere he could. So he, he sought pleasure in food. His um, daily allotment of food is astounding. Listen to this. Um, you find this actually in 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. Um, daily. <laughs> 6,600 liters of flour. He, he was not doing kind of the keto thing. 13,200 liters of cornmeal. I don't find cornmeal appealing, but evidently it was very pleasurable. 10 fat oxen, 20 cattle, of which I'm sure some were some Wagyu beef. 100 sheep and other animals. In other words, if you were living at court at that time, if you're Solomon, you ate whatever it is you wanted to eat. There was plenty of it, daily. Um, I can't imagine kind of the, the chef station at Solomon's house. It, it was um, like a really good cruise without the crummy food. It was just all good food all the time, 24-7, as much food and as much wine as you could possibly seek out. Um, here was someone who trumped all of the best restaurants in Denver. It was just, take, in fact, take the best restaurants in Denver Build an all-you-can-eat buffet, fill it with it, and just eat it to your heart's delight. Solomon sought to find meaning, find some sort of escape from the apparent vaporousness of life in that. It says that he hated it. He then sought it in wine. Have you noticed the sheer number 
of, of uh, dispensaries in our city. I think at one point um, when, they were, when marijuana was first made legal in our town, we'd counted that there were 13 marijuana dispensaries within a mile of our house at the time. I think the market has kind of closed in a little bit and eliminated some of those. Um, but we live in a city that is pursuing some sort of drunkenness, some sort of uh, ability to interpret and experience the world um, uh, without having to see as, as clearly as we can the vaporousness of it. Solomon tried wine. And he says it was madness. But here's a man who didn't just passively enjoy and pursue pleasure or let pleasure just come to him. Here's a man who worked at it. He calls it toil. So he built houses and he built gardens and he built waterfalls and he built parks. So here is Solomon, not just passively kind of taking in food, kind of getting fat, um, or or Solomon simply drinking or smoking a dube um, to to kind of enjoy and try to be blind to all that is life. Here is a man who went on hikes. Here's a man who built waterfalls so he could look at them. Here is a man who built beautiful buildings and architecture. In other words, his pursuit of pleasure was not merely passive. It was actually um, very, very active. He built things, marvelous things, stunning things, shocking things, to to go and enjoy them. He said it was vapor and vanity. Then there was music. We kind of just pass over this. It's an odd thing, odd statement. I got singers, both men and women. Um, until recently, it cost a lot of money to hear music. Like you couldn't pop in your earpods, air, whatever they're called, um, airpods, and just listen to tunes, like make a soundtrack of your life, wherever you wanted to go and whatever you wanted to do. No, you actually had to pay professional musicians to come and play music. You couldn't just fill your life with the sounds you wanted. You had to listen to the sounds that were actually out there. And then if you had an enormous amount of money, um, you could have some musicians come to your house, play music for dinner. Solomon did that all the time. He got singers, men and women singers. So if he got tired of kind of the bass, he got some sopranos and um, one of the things that we know from First and Second Kings, particularly in Chronicle and, and Chronicles, um, is that coming out of Solomon's reign, um, music really took off in Jerusalem. The kind of music that starts getting developed by Solomon and then gets expanded upon in, in the later kingdom um, was the kind of it was the first place in all of the world that if you had uh, something like orchestral arrangements and choral arrangements. Uh, music that literally people would travel from all over the world to go to Jerusalem to hear the music there. Solomon says, I got singers. And he got concubines. So he filled up his life with wine and food and building pleasurable, delightful things, parks he could hike in, waterfalls he could look at and reflect upon. Um, He he uh, surrounded himself with music, constant, beautiful, um, uh, new music, always new music. And he had lots and lots and lots of sex. 
sex with women that he says were the delight of the sons of men. The result is verse 9. Look at it. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And also my wisdom remained with me. He did it with his eyes open. He didn't do it in order to get blind, which I think is what a lot of us do. He did it evaluating, looking, seeing. Is there meaning here? Is there meaning here? Is there meaning here? Is there meaning here? Is there something to be gained here? Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. But I kept my heart, I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. He describes this pursuit of pleasure as toil. As you can imagine, if you have several thousand concubines and wives, it would be a lot of toil. This was my reward for all my toil. He considered all that he, his hands had done and all the work that he'd done in pursuing it. Here's his assessment in verse 11. All was vapor. It was empty. It was there one minute and then not there. It was a, a seeking to shepherd the wind. To try to make life go where he wanted it to go. Like herding cats. No one else really likes that analogy, but I'm just going to stick with it because it brings me to light. Nothing to be gained under the sun. Here's a man who had anything he wanted. A man who could pursue any experience he wanted. A man who could eat whatever he wanted, build whatever he wanted, drink whatever he wanted, smoke whatever he wanted, listen to whatever he wanted. And he did so with his eyes open. See what's really in the cave. In other words, he did this better than you can do it. Better than you're capable of doing it. And he says it's a vapor. I want you to think about that for a minute. How many of us in our culture think, if I just had a little bit money to pursue this, to build this, to start this, to experience this, to have this, then I could be satisfied. Then that'd be enough. Then I'll have landed somewhere solid, stable. Solomon went ahead of us in all of this. And his assessment of life under the sun with every pleasure, pleasure or desirable thing imaginable is to say it's empty, it's vapor. It's like shepherding wind. It, 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 it's there and then it's gone. Okay? 
So some of you are looking around the room, feeling rather meaningful and self-righteous. You know you've made great sacrifices to pleasure in order to pursue a career. These lazy bums here in Colorado who wear pajamas um, out and to work. I wear a suit. I go to my job. I work hard. Work 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week. I'm building a career, a lasting, firm career that has meaning. Right? That's what you're doing. You're sitting there thinking, good job, Brian. Get after those lazy bums. Just sit around and smoke pot and drink all the time. Ah, your turn. Look with me. Verse 18. Again, he's doing all of this with his eyes open. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Why did he hate it? Seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. If you know the story of Solomon, um, you'll know that he handed all of it to a fool. A fool who would lead to the destruction of Israel. Here's a man who built up a reputation for being wise, for building massive, glorious, wise buildings and structures and um, governance structures and, and, and architectural structures, um, all of it. Um, so, so famous, in fact, that people would travel from all over the world just to see what he built and to perhaps get a chance to talk to him. And he looks at his life and says, I'll spend my life building all of this, working, laboring, toiling, toiling so much he says that even as I lay in bed at night, I'm still not resting because I'm thinking about what I'm going to do next, what I'm going to build next, my new corporate strategy for taking over um, this part of the market, uh, my, new, uh, my new plot and plan to build a, uh, an even more efficient way of getting this job done. And so people would travel from all over the world, including the Queen of Sheba, see it, to hear from him, to talk to him and would say nothing like this has ever been done in the history of the world. His assessment after building all of it and achieving public greatness. Eyes open. I hated all my toil. vapor shepherding wind nothing ultimately is gained because who knows what's going to happen after you pass off that business that home that wealth a fool will come and ruin all of it It's there and has the appearance of substance. And then it's gone. Have you ever driven into a heavy fog? Like it's clear and then you see it maybe rolling down the mountain. And it looks like you're driving into something solid. And then you drive into it and it's just... Vapor, it's gone. Your car doesn't stop. It just keeps driving through it. 
Solomon's description of a life filled with every pleasure imaginable is to say, I got there, I drove all the way into it, the thickest possible form that that pleasure could take. And it was vanity. It was empty. It, it, it appeared solid. But then there was not much there. And then it was gone. He, he, he took work and toil and labor. Drove into the thickest part of it. The most successful, meaningful career that one could have. Built a company that does good and generates massive amounts of income. Efficiently and cheerfully. The best career you can imagine. If you could just imagine the best job and the best career path um, and, and, and the kind of wealth that would be accumulated, the kind of wealth that would be, um, that would be generated for others, the kind of goods that would be generated for others, um, Solomon did it better than you. And his reflection on all of it is to say, I hated every bit of it. Again, happy Sunday. I think this is what we do. I don't think Solomon is talking to kind of a small group of us. I think he's talking to the universal human condition. A desperate search to build something of substance, to find some meaning in life, lived under the sun, um, something that can be controlled, something that can be stable and unshakable. We're going to talk in weeks to come about C.S. Lewis's um, great book, Paralandra. The, the, the fundamental kind of uh, tension in that book is the tension between living on the islands that are floating and constantly moving and having to deal with every wave that comes upon them and the constant pull to go live on the solid island, the island that's not just floating, um, the island that has substance to it. Um, and, and God had placed the man and the woman on the floating islands and said, don't go live on that island. This is the world I've called you to live in. Wave upon wave, crashing um, the uphills and the downhills. You can almost get a little bit nauseous reading the book. Um, uh, But there is this constant pull, this constant temptation that I think C.S. Lewis describes perfectly for all of us. And we seek to find something of substance, something solid, something that's not just moving with the waves, something we can control and make predictable. And so we fill our lives with desperate toil, attempting to fill it with pleasure, attempting to fill it with a career, attempting to build big buildings or accumulate enough wealth or accumulate enough women or accumulate enough food or accumulate enough experiences, whatever the thing may be, in order to build something solid. Look at verse 14. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. I think we're trying desperately to walk in darkness. 
But listen to this next sentence. And yet I perceive the same event happens to all of them. Do you know what the problem with living under the sun is when all there is is what's under the sun? You're going to die. Even if you're like one of those spreadsheet people. Brady, who works for the church, she's a spreadsheet person. She has like 50 Google calendars. Literally. Manages manages well even the management of the management of everything. She's going to die. Let's say she gets lucky, hands all of this off to her son, Waverly. Who knows if Waverly will be wise or a fool? Here's the problem with living under the sun and why all of it is vapor and why all of it is unsolid is you are absolutely going to die. Again, happy Sunday. Statistically, three quarters of you in this room will some point sit in a doctor's office and be told you have cancer. That's a terrifying statistic. Death comes for all of us and you have no idea what's going to come next. So so even if you're wise, even if you use your wisdom to produce genuine goods, you have no control whatsoever over what's going to happen next. And as Solomon has already pointed out to us, no one's even going to remember your name. Two or three generations. Maybe you'll come up at one of those family reunions and go like, what was great grandpa's name again? Oh, it's Bob. What did Bob do? I don't know. So given that that's life under the sun in closing, what's Solomon's conclusion? Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give, give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity, vapor, and a shepherding of the wind. So here's the world as Solomon sees it. If all you have is what's under the sun... All you have is empty vapor that's gone. How do you live in a world that just functions that way? You acknowledge that there is a God. We're going to see how this works next week in chapter 3, the first half of chapter 3. But, but here's what Solomon says. Given that, that there's nothing solid in pleasure, and there's nothing lasting or any leverage to be gained in labor and work, then here's what you do. Receive from the hand of God every joy that comes to you. Receive from the hand of God every wave that crashes upon your life. Receive from the hand of God the toil, the labor that God's given you to do today. Not thinking, hey, can I build something that lasts forever? Or can I find some lasting meaning in this pleasure? Rather, enjoy the stake 
on your plate. Enjoy the glass of wine at your table and give thanks to God for it. When you get up Monday and you've got just one of those weird days where you've got spreadsheets maybe, like Brady, and you want to fill, and you have to fill out your spreadsheet, receive that and find a way to enjoy it. This is from the hand of God and this is the only path to joy if your eyes are open. Be faithful with what's directly in front of you, but more than just being faithful, be grateful. Receive it as a gift and give thanks to God. Solomon sought pleasure in anything he could lay his hands on. But in the Psalms, God calls us and says, sit at my right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. We want to build and construct a, a, some sort of legacy, something that would go beyond our death, some, so, some maybe kind of a way to escape death, um, maybe not for our bodies, but, but for our name or for our accomplishments. But death comes for us all, but Christ is the tree of life, and him alone is our rescue from death. In him we have a lasting treasure. We attempt to cover over our poverty with possessions and delights, but we'll all die. And the only possession that will matter in the end is our possession of Christ. And so in life under the sun, receive from the hand of God all that comes at you, knowing the things that God brings you, whether it's your work or your delights or your hardships. They come from a giver. A God who is not bound to life under the sun. Receive today the trouble that God has given you. Receive today the blessings that God has given you. Receive today the labor that God has given you. And do it with all your might. Knowing, knowing that even that is vapor. Let's pray and prepare for communion.